Dr. Ed Welch is our brother in Christ. He is a Christian psychologist and a professor and a counselor, and he once wrote a book about fear, and that book was titled, listen to this, When People Are Big and God is Small. I think that title gives us some insight into the roots of fear because so often your fears and mine are driven by our reactions to the people around us. We so often fear people more than we trust the power of our great God. Well, in this book, Dr. Welch writes about one of his own battles with fear when he was a senior in high school. Now, Ed grew up as a very shy and self-conscious teenager, and so he constantly worried about what other people would think of him. And his fear of adverse reactions from others shaped much of his own behavior. And this was revealed in a very dramatic way during the annual high school awards ceremony at his school. Now, Ed was in the running for senior of the year. That was an annual award his school gave out, gave out. But here's what's interesting. He's in the running for this award, and he was afraid that he might win. Now, most of us like to win awards, but not Ed. Ed didn't want to win because if he won, he'd have to go up on the platform in front of 2,000 people to receive the award. And for Ed, that thought was terrifying. And he sat there in the auditorium in the moment leading up to when they're going to announce the winner, and he's petrified, and he's starting to think of all the ways he might potentially embarrass himself if he wins. Oh, gosh, I'll, I'll trip going up the stairs. I, I haven't figured out what to say for an acceptance speech, and, and how are people going to react? What if I say something bad or stupid? And Ed was so filled with fear that he prayed, Lord, please don't let me win. Well, guess what? His prayer was answered. Somebody else got the award. Here's where it gets interesting. Was Ed relieved? Was he grateful? No, because now he felt like a failure. Everyone in the school knew that he was a candidate for the award, and he was worried now everyone's going to think he's a loser. And as the assembly ended and as he heads back to class, now he's got a new fear, and it's the fear of shame. And he was afraid of what kinds of reactions he might get from his classmates. So in that moment of his life, Ed's actions and reactions were driven by fear. In that moment, as he noted in the title of his book, the people, around, <clears throat> excuse me, the people around him were too big and God was too small. Ed feared people more than he trusted God. I think we all can relate to Ed's experience because fear can impact your life and mine in so many different ways. Yet we don't need to be afraid of fear. We don't need to be afraid of fear because it's natural, it's normal, it's part of how God made us. The challenge we face is learning to deal with our fears in healthy ways. Far too often you and I yield to fear and then it takes over and it drives us. 
And that was Ed's experience. Today's Bible passage shows us a better way. Psalm 55 is written by King David at a time when he's been abandoned by his family and by his friends and by his advisors. There's rebellion brewing in his kingdom and he is deeply, deeply afraid. He's afraid of losing his throne and he's afraid that his adversaries will kill him. And in those kinds of dire circumstances, what can he do? He turns to God and he prays about his fears because he knows that God is greater than his fears. Kay Sunderland is going to come and read this psalm to us this morning. And as she reads, I encourage you to listen closely so you can feel the level of fear that King David is feeling and experiencing. Psalm 55. Cast your burden on the Lord. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I should bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But, may, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to shoal alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. 
He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This psalm, like virtually every psalm we've been in lately, has an ascription or dedication at the beginning, and I, I love it, those sort of little editorial notes that come from the psalm writer or the music director, and, and those ascriptions give us some idea of who wrote the psalm and, and how it was used. And this particular ascription tells us that this psalm was used during worship, and it was accompanied by strings. And if you know anything about the stringed instruments of the ancient Middle East, they sounded very soulful. And so that music would help the worshipers experience the deep emotion that is expressed in this psalm. And this psalm also is a mass skill, which means it's a teaching psalm. And so the purpose of Psalm 55 is to teach us, and it's to teach us about how to deal with fear. And like many of the Psalms, it's deeply personal, but it's also written in a way that we all can learn from its principles. And and I love the way David prays here because it's a very conversational prayer. He doesn't follow some rigid outline. He He just prays and the topics kind of flow back and forth as thoughts run through his mind. And I find that I pray that way a lot, and I'll bet you do too. You just sort of free flow and you express to God what's on your heart, and that's what David's doing here. Now, David never mentions by name his enemies that he refers to in the psalm. We don't don't get their names, but it's very clear when we look at the history of Scripture that this prayer lines up with one particular time in Jewish history. It's the time of the rebellion of his son Absalom who wants to assume the throne. And if you ever want that background, you can read that historical story in the book of Samuel, chapters 15 to 18. And I would encourage you to read that story sometime because it's powerful and it's tragic. But what's really most tragic is that so many of David's key leaders abandon him to follow Absalom. And they become complicit in trying to overthrow David. Even one of his most trusted advisors, a man named Ahithophel, turns against him. And all of these people come together not to pursue a peaceful attempt at a transition of power, but they are making a violent attack on David as king. His throne is at risk. His life is at risk. So he has legitimate reasons to be afraid. And the thing he fears most is death. Let's take a closer look at that part of the psalm. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Wow. Those are intense words. There's a lot of emotion there. David realizes that these enemies may kill him, and it fills him with fear because he doesn't want to die. And I think we understand his fear of death because even under normal circumstances, our instinctive human condition is to resist death. 
You may be familiar with this old saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And there's a lot of truth in that statement because our culture conditions us to put more emphasis and more value on this life than the life to come. The Welsh poet Dylan Thomas wrote a classic prayer about the human struggle against death. That poem was called, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And there are two lines that are repeated throughout that poem. Listen to these words. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The point of that poem, fight against death with all that is in you. That is a very human perspective. But let's contrast that with the wisdom of God stated in places like Psalm 116, verse 15, where we read these words, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, now saints simply is a Bible word for people who put their trust in God. And so in that verse, God wants us to know that when people of faith die, he is waiting to welcome them home. God is waiting to welcome you and me home. The message of Scripture is that we don't hasten death, but neither do we rage against it. We do not need to fear death whenever it happens. And yet, it's real easy to say that. Don't fear death. It's really easy to say that when we're sitting here in church and we're all comfortable. Nobody at this moment is at risk. I think King David would agree that death isn't a fearful thing if, if his kingdom was calm and people weren't betraying him and if he was sitting quietly at home praying. <laughs> but at the moment that he's writing this psalm, David is dealing with the reality of treachery and potential violence. And so for him, this is not an abstract discussion about how peaceful it is to die and be in God's presence. The odds are pretty high that he will be brutally slain. And the thought of that understandably fills him with terror. And so as he writes these words, he's, he's struggling in the same way that you and I struggle when we let our minds start heading down that what-if path. And oh, we know what that's like, don't we? We let our minds go, and our thoughts swirl around, and we start envisioning all kinds of horrible outcomes. That kind of mental churning does not help us overcome our fears. And so David is facing a fearful situation. He's letting his mind dwell on it, and his fearful thoughts lead to a very specific response. Now, we know that fear usually produces within us what's called the fight-or-flight response. We react to fear by trying to protect ourselves, and we do so in one of two ways, by fighting back or by running away. Now, David is a warrior king, and he's led men into battle many times, so we know he's not afraid to fight. Yet in this case, his fear is so great that he would rather flee than fight. 
In this moment, his bravery is gone. He is paralyzed by fear. That is a huge change in David and tells us of the enormity of this situation. And in verses 6 to 8, as Kay was reading, we heard about him talking, uh, describing his reaction. He talks about wanting to fly away to a place of shelter. He wants to run away from his palace and run away from his throne and run away from his responsibilities and just leave it all behind. Now that is deep-seated fear. And by the way, there's a very interesting word that crops up from time to time in the Psalms. It's the word selah. It occurs twice in this Psalm, and we find it here between verses 7 and 8 as David talks about running away. Selah is an ancient Hebrew word that most likely refers to an instrumental interlude. It's designed to give worshipers time to reflect on what they've been singing. Whenever we see that word, we know that the worship leader wanted to emphasize that portion of the psalm. And by the way, that's good advice for us. When we're singing and there's an instrumental interlude, that's a good time just to say, hmm, let me ponder the words that we just sang to God. And so here in verses 6 to 7, as this psalm is being sung during public worship, the people are singing about their fear causing them to want to flee and to hide and to get away from it all. And they sing that and then, Selah. And the soulful strings play as the worshipers ponder what it means to be so incredibly fearful. And then they resume singing. And the words they sing in that part of the psalm are all about escape and isolation. These words express the desire to get far away and to live in the wilderness, to run away from everything that puts us at risk and causes us to be afraid. And at times we can take that kind of reaction to an extreme. I I don't know about you, But there's times when I feel just like that because there is so much going on in this world that can make me very fearful. Sometimes when I read the daily headlines, I'm tempted to quit my jobs, move to a remote cabin in the woods with Julie, and just forget about everything. Sometimes that sounds pretty tempting and pretty nice. But no matter where we run, we can't escape this world. We can't escape the realities of life. This is a broken world full of broken people, and we're part of it, whether we like it or not. Furthermore, God does not ask us to live in isolation. He wants us to live in this world as his representatives and to help build his kingdom. Yes, there are times when it's prudent to flee from danger, but we shouldn't run away from our responsibilities. And we shouldn't run away from the purposes of God. And that's why we, like David, must pray when we're full of fear. And as we pray and as we spend time with God, you know what happens? We get the fear out of our system. And then we can receive strength from God. 
And that's what David does here. One of the ways that he processes his fear is to do more than just say, Lord, I'm afraid. I mean, that would be good to say that to God, but he doesn't leave it at that. He tells God very specifically why he's afraid. And we learn that his fear stems from the incredible shock of deep betrayal. Let's take a look. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. Now we know from other parts of Scripture that this rebellion against David is led by his son Absalom, and we know that that, that act by his son is incredibly painful. I can't even begin to imagine that what that must be like. But in this prayer, at this moment, what's weighing so heavily on David is the treachery of his trusted counselor Ahithophel, who so perfectly fits the description written here. Now, Ahithophel was more than an advisor. He was a friend and a very close companion. He and David shared sweet counsel, and they worshiped together. David believed in that man and assumed he was sincere, but oh, he was just a smooth talker. He worked his way into a very intimate relationship with the king. He obviously loved being close to the seat of power, but beneath the surface there was evil in his heart all the time. And this man now has turned his back on David and joined the rebellion, and for David that must be like a knife in the gut. Have you ever known people like Ahithophel? Have you ever experienced a deep personal betrayal from someone you trusted like David did? I have, and unfortunately more than once. And I have to tell you, it leaves a deep and lasting wound. And what David is telling God here is that it's the betrayal of this trusted friend that's caused him to be so afraid. He can't believe that he was fooled so badly, so he likely questions his own judgment. It would be so natural for David to wonder, you know, I've still got some people standing by me, but could they be fooling me? Are they getting ready to betray me like Ahithophel did? It's no surprise that David is deeply, deeply fearful, wondering who he can trust. And yet, as he continues to pray, he expresses a growing confidence in God. This time of prayer gets David back on track and reminds him that when he trusts in God, then he doesn't need to yield to fear. In fact, his trust in God can conquer his fear, as he makes very clear in the latter part of his prayer. Let's take a look. 
But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Will. Not hopefully, not maybe, the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Key line here, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but I will trust in you. David's transition from fear to trust begins in verse 16 when when he affirms that God does hear him and that God will save him. And that confidence stems in great part from a consistent life of prayer. David tells us that at least three times a day, morning, noon, and night, he connects with God through prayer. And that is a powerful example for us. Brothers and sisters, if our contact with God is infrequent or intermittent, we're simply not going to be very close to Him and we're going to find it so much easier to yield to our fears than to trust God. I am convinced that the consistency of David's connection with God is what makes the difference here. Consistency of relationship is vital. You know, Scripture draws a parallel between marriage and our relationship with God. And think about how consistency of relationship works in a marriage. Husbands and wives who live together in a superficial superficial relationship find find it much more difficult to build a marriage that lasts. But couples who spend time together and share common interests, who share openly with each other about the ups and downs of life, who are honest with each other about their thoughts and feelings, who mutually admit their mistakes and forgive each other, they are so much better equipped to weather tough times because the two have become one. Their deep connection builds love and trust. And what's true with married couples is true with God. How can we truly trust Him if we don't spend time with Him? And right here in this prayer, we see the results of David's deep connection with God because the longer he prays, the closer he draws to God and the more he's able to express that trust in God. In the first part of the prayer, David's primary focus is on his fears and on his enemies. From verse 16 on, though, David spends far more time focusing on God, on the greatness of God, and on his trust in God. So so here's one way to summarize what happens. The very act of praying results in transformation. The very act of of praying produces within David that expression of trust that he needs to be able to conquer his fears. Here's another way we could summarize what's happened here based on that concept introduced by Dr. Welch that I mentioned at the start of the message. When David first starts to pray, people are big and God is small. By the end, that situation's reversed. At the end of the prayer, people are small. And God 
Oh, God is big. God is great. God is worthy of trust. And you and I can experience the same thing when we make consistent prayer a part of our lives. And here's a piece of this that I don't want us to miss. As David moves through his fears and beyond his fears and expresses his trust in God, he he seems to make peace with the idea that he might die. In verse 18, he affirms that God redeems his soul in safety. In other words, David may die physically, but he's in no danger spiritually. So he can affirm that God will sustain him. And that's true whether he lives or dies. Because God has redeemed his soul. Because of that confidence. That's why this psalm, which begins with a plea for mercy, this prayer where David expresses his fear about the terror of death, he can end with this stirring statement of faith in verse 23, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Yet even as David makes that emphatic statement of faith, we need to remember his problems aren't over. The rebellion still is underway. Losing his throne, losing his life, those are still very real possibilities. But through this prayer, David gets the fear out of his system. And through prayer, he's able then to place his wholehearted trust in God. The God who is great. The God who is greater than his deepest fears. Now, it's highly unlikely that you and I ever will face an armed rebellion like David did, because I don't think any of us are ever going to sit on a throne. But we all face our own fears of various kinds. So I wonder what kind of fears tend to bubble up in you. How do those fears affect your life? And most importantly, how might God want to help you overcome your fears so that you can live up to your highest potential. Now, at the start of the message, I shared the story of Dr. Ed Welch, who was a teenager, was terrified about being on stage in front of people and also was terrified about being viewed as a failure, so he just wanted to stay in the background. Fear of being in front of people, fear of being viewed as a failure. Do either of those or... One of the other of those or both of those resonate with you? Here's what's important to know. Dr. Welch let God help him overcome those fears because he's a professor. He regularly stands in front of groups and teaches. He's an author. He writes books. You can't do that if you're afraid of how people are going to react. You see, Ed has pushed through all that. He's able to do those things that God has gifted him to do because the fear isn't in charge. God is. I have been teaching and preaching the Bible for more than 40 years. 
and I have a confession to make. I'm afraid. When I sit in church on a Sunday morning, and that moment approaches when I know I'm going to have to get out of my seat and come and stand up here and speak in front of a group of people, I always, always, always feel a twinge of fear. I get butterflies on my stomach. But I learned a long time ago that God is greater than my fears. And so I push through those fears and I come and I do what God's asked me to do and inevitably the minute I start then the peace of the Holy Spirit descends and the fear goes away. See, I refuse to let the fear be in charge. Because if the fear was in charge and I never got out of my seat then I couldn't be faithful to do what God has asked me to do. And the same is true for each of you. God can and he will help each of us push through our fears so they won't hold us back from fulfilling our highest potential. And it's true for all of our fears, whether they're big fears or small fears, whether they're fears that are kind of unique to us or whether they're fears that are common to many. Here's a fear that I found is very, very common within God's family. I know many, many Christians who are afraid to pray out loud in front of other believers. And if that's you, I think God wants to help you overcome that fear. Because why are you afraid? You're worried about what other people will think. And it's not about what other people will think. It's about what God will think. And God makes it very clear in Scripture that He wants us to pray for one another. And here's the thing that I've experienced in my own life. Even if someone is not very eloquent, when I hear another believer pray for me, oh my goodness, that is one of the most encouraging things they can do for me. That is one of the most encouraging things we can do for one another. And you can be in the presence of other Christians and you can pray aloud for them and be a blessing to them if you refuse to let the fear overwhelm you. See, fear does come from God. It's part of who we are. And it can be a good servant. But it makes a horrible master. When we trust God and let him guide our fight or flight response, that's when fear assumes its proper role in our lives. But what you and I don't want to do, what we shouldn't let happen, is to fear take control. And what we really shouldn't let happen is to let fear, rather than faith, decide the most important decisions of life. And that actually happened to a friend of mine named Kevin. Kevin was attending seminary and was preparing to enter the ministry. Now his father had been raised as a Presbyterian, his mother had been raised as a Baptist, and so growing up, Kevin was exposed to the Christian faith 
And he spent time in both of those different churches. And, and when he entered into his teen years, he felt very called by God to be a, a pastor, but he wasn't sure which of those two churches he might want to participate in, which denomination he should commit himself to. So he spent hours studying the significant differences in doctrine and theology between the Baptists and the Presbyterians. And he looked deeply into the organizational structures of those denominations and, and read widely about, well, what does each group expect of the people that they appoint to be ministers in their churches? Right before graduation, I asked Kevin if he'd made a decision. He said, yes, I'm going to become a Presbyterian minister. And here's what's interesting. He made that decision not based on doctrine or theology or organizational structure or anything else of substance. He made that decision based on fear. Here's what my friend told me. My greatest fear is that someday I will be in the middle of a sermon and suddenly realize that my zipper is down. And as a Presbyterian minister, I get to wear a robe. <laughs> and so that never, ever will be a problem. Now, we chuckle because it's funny, but it's also sad. In fact, it's rather tragic. Because a decision like that is huge. It's significant. And in one of the most important decisions of his life, Kevin made that decision based on fear, not faith. For Kevin, in that moment, people were big and God was small. We don't want to go down that path. And so I wonder, what fears might you be battling today? The question always is, will you let the fears be in charge? Or will you let God be in charge? Psalm 55 offers great life lessons for us. And whenever you and I face times of fear, we can turn to this rich teaching psalm and we can learn from this heartfelt prayer of King David. And this prayer can restore to us the confidence that our God is great. He is greater than any fears you or I ever will face. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you for, for never abandoning us. And we thank you for sustaining us through good times and hard times. And Lord, we admit that because we're so very human and we're weak and we're frail, at times we can find it easy to give in to fear. Give in to fear. And so help us to learn from the example of King David, our spiritual ancestor, and may we connect with you more consistently in prayer so that our trust in you will grow and grow and grow. And Lord, whenever fears bubble up within us, I pray that our first reaction would be to pray. That we would take those fears and we would just bring them to you and by talking to you get the fear out of our system. And so we can be reminded of just how great you are and that you truly are greater than any fears we ever will face in this life.
may we say, along with David, I will trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.